morning and welcome to Rising. Madeleine Albright, who served as Secretary of State under Bill Clinton, has died at the age of 84. Albright was the first woman to serve in the position. According to Albright's family, she died from cancer. President Biden recalled his time working with Albright and said, quote, When I think of Madeleine, I will always remember her fervent faith that America is an indispensable nation. In other news, Moderna is seeking emergency authorization of its coronavirus vaccine for children younger than six. According to reports released yesterday, the drug maker is aiming to start vaccinating babies, toddlers, and preschoolers come summer. The two-dose vaccine was found to be 44% effective at preventing infections from Omicron in children aged six months to two years old and roughly 38% effective for children aged two to five years old, according to data from Moderna. And as reports of a new variant have become more prominent, the second largest school district in the nation, the Los Angeles Unified School District, finally reached an agreement with its teachers to end its indoor mask mandate and agreed to weekly PCR testing for all students, staff, and faculty until the end of the school year. Dr. Fauci warned about the potential spread of the new variant, BA2 Omicron, on ABC News. Watch that. Clearly throughout the world, it's about 80 plus percent, 85 percent of the isolate. In the United States, it's still somewhere around 30 percent. So it does have an increased transmission uh, capability. However, when you look at the cases, they do not appear to be any more severe and they do not appear to evade immune responses, either from vaccines or prior infections. So the bottom line is we likely will see an uptick in cases, uh, as we've seen in the European countries, particularly the UK, where they've had the same situation as we've had now. They have a BA2. They have a relaxation of some of the restrictions, such as indoor masking. And there's a waning of immunity. Hopefully we won't see a surge. I don't think we will. Uh, the easiest way to prevent that is to continue to get people vaccinated and for those who have been vaccinated to continue to get them boosted. Rand Paul gave his rebuttal to Fauci's interview over on Fox News. Here's that. Not one thing he has advocated other than the vaccine, and I'm not against the vaccine, but the interesting thing is this, and he won't admit this to the public. If you take a sample of blood from a thousand people anywhere in the United States and you measure to see if they have antibodies to the virus or antibodies to the vaccine, it's over 95 percent. That's why we're doing better with this. We have developed immunity either from having the disease or from being vaccinated. And that's why we're doing better in addition to the fact that the virus has mutated to a less virulent or less deadly form. But he won't admit it because he's so caught up in putting stickers on the floor, putting masks on your face, putting goggles on you. The guy's a menace. And he hasn't been right really about anything since the start of this. Although it sounds like they're getting closer to agreement, actually. Like, no, they are. But uh, what Rand is saying is that he's been there all along. And now the the covid cautious team blue health official type people are finally coming along to the. Well, all right. It's you know, what right. Are we gonna al do? Although uh, Fauci's plan to get to herd immunity was not that we would have one of the highest infection rates in the world. Right. And, and actually, so we, we were talking about Bill Gates uh, a couple weeks ago saying, sadly, it looks like. Uh, Omicron is becoming like a mass vaccination. And we couldn't figure out why he was saying sadly. But f later I finally figured it out. He meant sadly like these people got sick right. and some of them died. Right. And that you would prefer that they get some inoculation in a way that doesn't lead to them you know, right. dying and, and getting se severely ill. And so 
okay, it's good that we have 95%. Let's say it's true that we have 95% you know, either uh, you know, prior infection or, or vaccinated. The fact that so many people got it wouldn't have been at the start. Hey, let's, let's have a million. Let's have, I don't, how many people got it in the United States? What, got it? I don't know. We have a something? million deaths. Right. Right. Yeah. A million and deaths. So I don't know. We don't know how many people like got it. Mil- <laughs> tens of millions. Yeah. Right. So if, if in March 2020. Well, there's, how many? There's 400 million people in this country, right? 330, 340. 330. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, well, I, and I don't know. I don't, the, our vaccination rate is like 80% or something at this point, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So but if you yeah. would have said in March 2020, the way, to, the way we're going to get out of this through herd immunity is a combination of vaccinations and infections. And a million people will die of it. Say that again? Yeah. Yeah. 80 million cases. And 80 million people will get it. If you just said that in March 2020, you'd be like, no, well, let's try something else. I don't know if 80 million people are getting this. Even if, say, 30% are asymptomatic. That's still 50 million people suffering through this and, and up to a million dying. But, but one group of people who really tend to not have severe outcomes are the very young. And, and that's why, look, I would, uh, you know, I'm, I'm for approving vaccine. I'm for right to try. I'm, I'm right. for, I get the government out of the way. Let people make these choices for themselves. Let this seven-month-old make the choice. <laughs> well, let his family make the yeah. choice. Um, but this is not a, that's not a very high, I, I thought, what, well, wasn't getting to 50% efficacy the whole a deal for, for it's, the it's, other stuff? It's, it's impossible for them to get too high because you have, you're measuring effectiveness against the severity of the illness. Right. And since so many kids have basically right. no reaction, let's say six months to two years, such a tiny reaction that it's, that it's right. impossible to have. It's so mild, we cannot prove that the vaccine because you can only is go so much improvement. You can yeah. only get it so much less mild. Yeah, is the is the point. Which just makes it crazy that this, not so and much so now, but for so long, was a that, sticking point. This was a sticking right. point for schools, for teachers unions. That oh yeah, we well, everybody's got to be masked because we don't have these little kids vaccinated. Right. Stupid. And now they're doing Stupid. PCR tests every week in Los Angeles. Where, the where are they going to get those? Yeah, I, just stop. Just stop. <laughs> I mean, stop. <laughs> If we got the tests, go ahead. If you want, if you want to be fine. It, it's just, it's not. What it doesn't prove. Also, anything. Los Angeles, open your windows. Yeah, open. Sure, open the windows. That's like, good. Yeah, if you're, you're in, in LA, LA. You're in LA. Yeah, have class on the beach. I don't know. Yeah, how, like LA sh- should have done better with their. What I don't know LA culture, but I would assume, knowing LA people, that they close all their windows and crank the AC. Yeah. Do we think that's, that's what Kim does? We don't let's, ask, let's ask, we'll Kim, ask later. Kim later. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, Kim, Kim, I'm a Kim close is a, all my actually, Kim's this, a wanderer. She's less of an L.A. person. Right. So. This is one dispute my wife and I actually commonly have because I am one of those people. I want to shut all the windows, <laughs> crank the A.C. She wants the windows open like all the time as soon as it's nice out or even when it's not as nice out. She's doing good COVID cautious behavior you, by you keeping know, those windows me, open. You know me. Now, now that it's a COVID thing, too, I, I want to shut more. them. Shut I want to bolt them shut. I'm going to bolt them shut. Get the paint out there. <laughs> Landlords, why, why are you painting all of our windows? But, uh, yeah, so it, it will be interesting if this new variant, uh, right, if, it, if there'd be maybe a slight increase in cases, if that's – my worry is that even a slight increase in cases will prompt the most COVID-cautious Democratic officials like – in L.A. and in D.C. 
and a few other places, that will be enough for them to trigger the Some return of, them. of mass mandates. Some of them, but National Democrats are going to tamp down on that so hard. I, I with hope the, they with do. With the midterms coming. I hope they do. Because Listen to Jared Polis. Yeah, that, Listen to Jared Polis. The thing, the thing National Democrats are afraid of is another wave that would trigger that and then would trigger the re- yeah. reverse response from independents on the right saying, uh-oh, here comes another. You know, they're scared of what Democrats might do. So they're saying, no, no, don't. Right. Don't do it. Um, now, the, the place still getting hit the worst, interestingly, Hong Kong, which has this very low vaccination rate. And, and I, was, I was thinking about this this morning that you know, China has been making the argument for a couple years, five years now, that the, the two big problems with the Western hegemony were, A, they create all this chaos and they go to war. And, and so they blow up the global world, world order. And, and <coughs> Russia. B, yeah. And B, they really failed on their COVID response, whereas kind of China you know, did really well with its Locking COVID people in response. their homes and murdering their pets looks right. It's great. Right, yeah. And, they're, yeah, and they're saying liberalism can't respond to pandemics and social unrest and populism. You need illiberalism. You need to be able to crack down on it. Right. So, I mean, Hong Kong is a mix, obviously, but the complete failure of, in Hong Kong combined with uh, this chaos created by the Russian invasion is undercutting two of the major arguments China makes for why they'd be a better steward of global hegemony. Yeah, I don't the West think they would, be. they would definitely, you know, for all our criticisms of what the U.S. does and, and, and what it has done in the Middle East mm-hmm. is, you know, a war crime. Uh, no, I, I do not want to be under the thumb mm-hmm. of the Chinese authoritarians, uh, yeah. which have responded to this pandemic in ways only our most COVID cautious policy <laughs> advisors in the U.S. could dare to dream right. of, which is terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. And we'll tell you what's on our radars up next. Robbie, what's on your radar? So recently I've highlighted several incidents on college campuses in which progressive student activists have prevented invited speakers from delivering their remarks. It happened at UC Hastings, and more notably it happened at Yale Law School, where the next generation of leading legal minds, judges, justices, and attorneys shouted down a conservative lawyer who was slated to engage in conversation with a progressive lawyer about religious freedom issues on which they actually agree. So I've been reporting on campus protests, free speech issues, actually for my entire journalistic career, which spans about 10 years. Higher education was actually my main beat when I started out, and these issues were the things I covered most frequently until the pandemic when widespread school closures, other mitigation procedures caused me to focus on some other issues. But it's clear that the tendency to want to silence rather than understand the opposition did not die off during the pandemic. For the left, it's back and as powerful a driver as ever. So case in point, this week, students at the University of Virginia learned that the campus would soon host former Vice President Mike Pence, who was invited by UVA's chapter of the conservative group Young Americans for Freedom. Pence is scheduled to speak on April 12th, in just a few weeks. The Cavalier Daily, which is UVA's student newspaper, they denounced this plan and published an editorial the other day opposing Pence speaking on campus. Quote, the Cavalier Daily's editorial board does not condone platforming an individual that not only denies the existence of our diverse community, but participates in the violent rhetoric that perpetuates harm against these individuals. To our administration, we implore you to do better. Protect your students. Violent rhetoric. The direct implication of that statement is that the student journalists think UVA's administration should prevent Pence from speaking on campus because his words pose a physical threat to other students' safety. 
Consider how ridiculous that is. How could it be that Pence's mere words, his expression of his opinions, could constitute violence? Why is it that, why is that ideology of young people, that their physical safety is compromised if they have to listen to words they don't like? Yet that's exactly what the editorial concludes. Hateful rhetoric is violent and this is impermissible. That's what they think, that's what it says. Now in reality, there's of course a major difference between hateful rhetoric and violence. What, count, what counts as hateful? If I said, there is no God, that would certainly count as hateful for millions of people, but it's my First Amendment right to say it. The Supreme Court has been very clear on that. In fact, there is no recognized exception to the First Amendment for hate speech. Hate speech is an entirely made up, subjective category. What one person thinks is hateful, another person might find inoffensive. More importantly, what one person thinks is hateful might be objectively true, no matter how angry it makes you. So it's important to remember that the right of Americans to say things that offend other people is actually one of the most visibly protected rights in existence today. The Supreme Court has litigated cases involving really, really horrendously awful speech and concluded that that speech is nevertheless permissible. In the 2010 case, Snyder versus Phelps, SCOTUS weighed in on the First Amendment rights of the Westboro Baptist Church. If you don't remember, that's the viciously cruel Christian cult that protests at the funerals of American soldiers while waving signs that say, God hates gay people, God hates Catholics, God loves dead soldiers. Really vile, disturbing stuff. But guess what? The Supreme Court ruled that the Westboro Baptist Church had a First Amendment, a First Amendment right to engage in those protests. It wasn't even close. It was an eight to one decision. This wasn't a hotly contested matter. So if the Westboro Baptist Church has a constitutional right to wave their signs at grieving families of soldiers, then probably mild-mannered Mike Pence also enjoys the right to give a speech at a public university. So, you know, this is another example of something I've been reporting on for a long time, and, and, and I'm not the only one. It's, it's now something a lot of conservatives, centrists, even liberals have noticed and remarked upon. It still strikes me every time it happens. This is an editorial in the, the main student paper at UVA saying it would make the campus unsafe. Mike Pence's presence, his words, would make the campus unsafe. No one will die because Mike Pence speaks. That's like totally ridiculous. But it, it, is, it is the thinking. It is the ideology of a lot of young progressive people. And I, I've been trying for years to understand where that comes from. And it's clear to me... It's not tactical because when right. it's pointed out to them that this makes you look rather foolish and everyone's making fun of you for this, they don't seem to care. Their viewpoint seems to be that uh, they have to do it because people's lives are literally at stake, they think, even though they're not, that words are the same as violence, that, that disturbing someone emotionally or psychologically is akin to violence and thus can be met with like self-defense, essentially. Yeah. I think part of it, too, is that people, in, particularly in their late teens and early 20s, who have a real sense that their obligation is to shape the world into a better place, uh, are, are always on the lookout for an outlet for that energy. And they're going to channel that energy into places you know, where it has been carved out for it to flow. Mm -hmm. And right now, like that's, those are the fights. Like if you want to, if you want to have a, a fight over the meaning of what makes a better world as a college student today, like that's that's the battleground, like whether or not Mike Pence should be able to speak, and once that's the battleground, all good and right-thinking people are going to be on the side of well, of course he should not speak; he's bad, 
and there's you know and there's there's no free there's no kind of left wing free speech crowd that you can kind of yeah. slot in with that's going to say I don't agree with it much or anything of what Mike Pence says, other than the fact that he didn't overthrow the government. Good for him for doing that. Uh, but, you know, I defend his right to speak. There's not, there, there isn't that kind of faction on yeah. campus. But I think on a higher level, there, there isn't, you know, so when I was in uh, college, there was the anti-globalization movement. And, then, and around that time, there was the kind of anti-sweatshop movement, and it was intermingled with it. And, and there was the, li- the, the fight for a living wage. And so on like Harvard's campus famously, but also on campuses all over the country, students got together and fought for higher wages for, it was you know, Justice for Janitors was the name, fought for, fought for a living wage for the people who worked on the campus, trying to better their community materially and economically. And that was then the outlet for this feeling of guilt that is produced by the privilege of just getting to just read books and throw the frisbee at this immaculately groomed right, campus right. that you try to fight for justice for the people who are doing the grooming of it. And so that gave people, you know, some sense of meaning that people are still some people are still doing that, but it doesn't have the energy. Right. It doesn't get the same media attention, which, you know, we're guilty of. Right. Maybe we can highlight some of those. So we say, hey, look, go here, go, go fight in these now, there was also the, the climate movement for a long time, and, and, that, is, and that is still popping. Uh, so maybe, maybe if you, if you want to uh, crush some of this stuff, you've got to elevate the climate justice movement. Yeah, you got to, because the energy's got to go somewhere. Right. These, these kids have energy. Well, and it's just, but it's just such a lame expression of that energy. It it, is. It, it's a very, I mean, it's in some ways a similar phenomenon to like the Karen type thing like that they're really trying to sick the manager the the administration yeah. like that's the which is the least radical thing of all that you can do yeah. is is ask the campus authority figure to to assuage your hurt feelings right yeah for centuries like the defining feature of post adolescence was being against authority right and it, it is a new thing since the 2000s that these post-adolescents actually are just constantly appealing, appealing to authority, to authority and, and yeah. they want more, more action yeah. from authority. Like the problem was that the administrators didn't do enough to take care of X situation. And how do they usually respond to that? They create a new sub-department with three staff, and boom, and, and there's another. And they pay those staff members a lot of and money. And they got to have offices. I've and checked the sa- I FOIA'd all the salaries. Yeah. They're highly paid positions. And who pays for that? Tuition. Right. And so then we so the you you can precisely map this shift in anti-authority toward pro-authority to the the blowing ballooning of the size of college administrations to the ballooning of the cost of tuition. Now, it doesn't mean that all of those correlations are precisely what is driving it, but. The, pretty, the lines, for the the staff, lines overlap. Right. It's not that the faculty salaries bear, have barely budged. In some cases, faculty are asked to do more and more, or, or adjunct right. faculty, people who are you know, earning poverty wages, despite all the right. debt they have that they've accumulated. That's not the issue. With the staff member, those salaries, and just the number of staff members, mm-hmm. 
those have grown un unbelievably, ungodly growth right. in that sector. Right. Um, the other thing I, you know, I just wanted to, to mention, I, I guess one of the reasons I'm always disturbed by these stories and I, I, I try to call attention to them, the specific claim that words are violence is such a, is a weird mm -hmm. and, and I think dangerous claim to make. Uh, certainly, if Mike Pence's preferred policies be, become law, I see why, you know, people who are against those policies, and I disagree with many of them as well, it, it is totally fair to say if these policies become law, they would harm, if your view is that you're against it, they would harm XYZ mm -hmm. people. Absolutely, I get that. That is so different from saying that just him speaking is, is self-violence. That is, a, that is a, a speech action that is eroding right. a distinction that exists only in the post-Enlightenment world that... Your words don't need to be met with violence because they are just words. So if you offend my family, I don't need to kill you in a duel. If you say something against my religion, I don't have to have you burned at the stake. If you say something against my king, I don't have to have you executed. That is a new phenomenon that is a good violence-limiting, violence-decreasing phenomenon. So right. it's and very the, weird to... And, and the flip side of the branding of support for free speech as being a right-wing thing... Is, is the most stunning kind of right. turnaround in my lifetime. Right, yeah. And the right's not, often not honest about it. Yeah, and guess what? They're books, not for free speech. Books taken off shelves. Books taken yeah. off shelves on one hand, and people, you know, silenced when they're trying to speak at a, in a public square, in a public forum by the other side. Yeah. Terrible. But I'm looking forward to what's on your radar coming up next. What's on your radar, Ryan? Well, the conventional wisdom in Washington says that the Build Back Better Act is dead and buried, done in by a thumbs down from Joe Manchin. And there's plenty of reason to believe that's true. Here's Joe Manchin himself speaking at an, industri an energy industry conference recently called Zero Week. Two questions. Could you tell us where things are on negotiations over reconfiguring the Build Back Better? There is no Build Back, Back Better. Okay. Okay. Uh, would, would you vote <laughs> on that? That seems clear enough, right? There is no Build Back Better. Well, yes and no. So Build Back Better is definitely dead, but long live a yet-to-be-named bill that will do some, but by no means all, of what the original tried to do. So let's head back to Mansion for some more of that. And by the way, this audio comes courtesy of Kate Aronoff, my former Intercept colleague who now writes for The New Republic. I interviewed her recently about her experience at this conference in an episode of my podcast, Deconstructed. All right, so here's more Mansion. The climate provisions. Let me go in. I don't mean that to be sarcastic. That bill was a, was a major mammoth piece of legislation, okay? And the reason I had concerns from day one is that we shouldn't be doing that much policy. Reconciliation was never designed for us to do policy. It was designed for us to get our financial house in order. It truly was. And so the main social restructuring he's talking about there, he's saying that, you know, the reconciliation wasn't, wasn't designed to do social restructuring, restructuring. That's things like the child tax credit and child care subsidies. And Manchin famously warned that giving parents help like that will just mean they'll spend more time either hunting or buying drugs. So I suspect that that kind of thing is out of this new package. Now, he also expressed a process complaint. He wants hearings. Yeah, there's so many good things in there that we all have aspirations to do, a lot of good things. And But with that, you should go through a process where there's a hearing, it's transparent, it's open to the public, and then we have a markup. 
we have a markup, and the markup basically is where people put their ideas to make it better or something they think will be detrimental to their area. That's the process we have. We bypassed all that. So I said, no. Now, the funny thing is, guess who this chairman of the Energy Committee is, the person who hasn't scheduled hearings yet on this important legislation? Yeah, that's right. The chairman of the Energy Committee is Joe Manchin. Okay, so if Manchin does get these hearings, what's he okay with in a package? And this is key. Is it one thing that all Democrats agreed on was the 2017 tax cuts, the way they were implemented, were weighted unfairly. And it did not basically spin off the amount of revenue we needed to pay down our, uh, our debt. So we're 30, I think 30 trillion, 200 billion as of this morning is our debt right now. And it grows every day, every day. You've got to change that trajectory. So I says, if we all agree, and we have agreement on one thing, then use it to get your financial house in order. Basically, get the tax code that's competitive, that's fair, allows us to compete and grow and be prosperous, but pay the bills. And then use revenue from that to pay down debt to get your finances in order. We can still do that. We can still do the one with the drug thing. I said, that's the most popular thing we have. Getting our drugs, we know we can do that. And then we can do maybe an all-in, all-inclusive climate package to some extent. And that basically, they know where I stand. If it doesn't have an all-in policy to where you're treating the horsepower that you need from your fossil, which is coal, oil, and natural gas, okay, and the and investments that we're going to need in the new uh, nuclear reactors, if you will, and also in geothermal, and all the things that we're talking about with our wind and solar and all that, you can't just abandon one. And that's what they were doing. I just, I said, I'm not for that. And so that's the key, that's, that's his outline. So to, to translate it, he's for rolling back a bunch of the uh, Trump tax cuts on the rich. He's for uh, basically uh, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. That brings in about a one and a half trillion dollars worth of revenue. He says, take half of that and pay down the debt. Take the other half, if you wanna do the climate thing, do the climate thing, Ge geothermal, nuclear, all energy gets, you know, you know, equally brought in, but climate, but clean energy gets tons of it. That would be a something like $500 billion investment in clean energy. And, and what I've been hearing from people on uh, Capitol Hill is that there is actually now real confidence that this, that this could happen, that the assumption around the country that this is all just completely dead is not right. And that once uh, the Brown-Jackson confirmation hearings are over, they could write something like this. And that's, and that's the outline, because Manchin will be the one who is dictating all of the terms. Yeah. Know, what, what, do you, what do you think? Does this seem like something? And, and it, would be, it would be pitched around inflation. Right. Because so the deficit reduction is, uh, deflation, is allegedly deflationary. Tax, uh, you know, tax increases on the super rich, allegedly deflationary. Uh, pushing down drug prices is obviously deflationary. And then investing in clean energy is also going to bring down energy prices. So the whole thing is pitched as, as fighting inflation. I mean, it yeah. sounds like a pretty politically well thought out thing to do, a reasonable thing to do. Yeah. I, I personally can't in good conscience <laughs> support tax increases on anyone, the rich or anyone else. But I mean, I, I like the, the, the drug, uh, pri the direct re renegotiation yeah. of prices. 
you sold me on that one. Um, and uh, yeah, we have to make certain investments, obviously, in energy, given especially given what's going on right. with Russia, Ukraine. So yeah, I, this would be a this would kind of be a slam dunk, really. <laughs> Biden administration so. has to do something. Right. They have to have something to point to. Is like mm-hmm. look at what we accomplished, and you know, bonus if it actually works to bring down inflation. You know, that could be the difference between if, if you could possibly get this done. Well, you have to get it done before the midterms because you yes. can't get it right. done after. Yes. Right. It could be the difference between getting utterly, utterly destroyed beyond all comprehension yeah. in the midterms and just having a really bad midterm, which are the only two options at this point. And, and the other thing that it would do, well, a couple other things. One, it would give them something, something modest to point to, to say, like, look, we're not complete and total failures. Mm-hmm. Failures. But not complete and total failures. Look what look what we managed to do. We did something. And I, and I suppose it also doesn't it doesn't scream like ideological overreach right. or something. It's deficit reduction. Yeah, You're reducing the deficit. Who who doesn't love reducing the deficit? Anti inflation. Yeah, I mean, I, I hate reducing the deficit. You, for the who deficit. hates reducing the but deficit? No, normal people are like, oh, deficit reducing the deficit. That's, that it. sounds good to me. Yeah, and also, let's say you do five hundred billion in climate money, that could wind up being five trillion in private investment, mm-hmm. like it, because of the way that it could leverage mm-hmm. the capital that's sitting on the sidelines. And it, and, it, and it would also allow then the Biden administration to continue to sort of govern even without control of Congress, because they would have all of this money that had already been appropriated that they could push into different clean energy projects. And so that would, that would beat just what Obama did from 2010 through 2016, which is just like complaining about John Boehner and, and cutting like austerity deals, trying to reduce the deficit, and just fiddling your thumbs until you gradually whittle away the entire coalition and get replaced by Trump. Well, they better get on it because the clock is ticking. <laughs> the clock is ticking. Clock yeah. is gotta, really ticking. It's got to happen in like the next six weeks, eight weeks, something like that. Right, because yeah. because then summertime it's done. What are like, cinema's thoughts about it? That's that's a key, that's a key wild card, and so I think wild people, card. people have given up. I think guessing, and and I think are willing to say, you know what, if we get forty eight Democrats plus Joe Manchin, and cinema comes onto the floor and does a curtsy and a thumbs down, what are you going to do? Sort of like Reggie Miller, if he's going to beat you from like forty five feet out with just nailing three-pointers all the time. Uh, your your like, sports you, references are utterly, <laughs> utterly lost in me. I don't even know what sport you're talking about right now. So, like, in, in basketball, they would say... If, no, I'm if, kidding. Yeah. I knew it was basketball. You know, because you knew because of the three-pointer. No, I knew But anyway. the, the general point would be that there's nothing you can do to defend against that. Mm-hmm. And if he's going to hit those shots, then you're going to lose. And if cinema is going to hit those shots, you're going to lose. So just play, play your game the best you can and put yourself in a position to win and hope that she feels the pressure... To say, you know what, I'm not going to take this entire agenda down just because I don't like the increases on the increases on taxes on the rich. I, I should ask while we brought this up, how's your bracket doing? I filled it out here. Yeah. But I didn't hit submit. Oh no! <laughs> I filled mine out. I did bracket. hit submit, but I haven't looked at it yet. I, I know I, I'm doing pretty badly. So I'm sure it would have been a bloodbath. Would have been a bloodbath. Yeah. So I don't even remember who I picked now. Yeah. There you go. All right. So our rising panel is next. We discuss how billions in federal funds authorized by the American Rescue Plan are set to be funneled away from pandemic relief and to policing instead. Stay tuned for that.
billions in federal funds authorized by the American Rescue Plan are set to be funneled away from pandemic relief and instead diverted toward padding police and prison budgets across the country. That's according to new reporting in the appeal. Last fall, the Alabama legislature reallocated $400 million American Rescue Plan funds solely toward constructing new state prisons. For reference, Alabama lawmakers allocated only $80 million worth of pandemic relief cash toward aid for hospitals and nursing homes. And across the country in Los Angeles, California, Alexis Oliver Ray reports that of the $600 million of relief money the city received, over half was instead funneled to the LAPD for, quote, payroll expenditures. The redirection of COVID relief comes with the express blessing of President Joe Biden, who confirmed at a press conference last June that lawmakers would allow as much as $350 billion, billion with a B, dollars of American Rescue Plan money nationally to go toward, quote, addressing crime. So our rising panel is here to weigh in. Max Alvarez is host of the Working People podcast, editor-in-chief of the Real News Network, and author of The Work of Living and Amy Tarkanian is a Republican strategist and the former chairwoman of the Nevada GOP. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Good guys. morning. And so, uh, Max, it, the, the, the prison and police complex was just cash-strapped? What, what happened? Why did they, uh, they need all this money all of a sudden? And does this have anything to do with the fact that now they're saying they have no money for COVID relief left? It just might, Ryan. It just might. <laughs> I mean, like, you know... Um, a lot of people on the internet will say that you know we have these Joker moments, right? When when you're watching events unfold and you feel like you're becoming the Joker, this is one of them for me. I'm watching this and I am just enraged and flabbergasted <laughs> at what I'm seeing. And this is something that um, you know we reported uh, a bit as well over at the Real News. You know Eddie Conway, who himself was incarcerated as a pr- political prisoner for 44 years reported on Alabama allocating $400 million of federal COVID relief funds to build new prisons. And, you know, just the, just the kind of irony of that conversation taking place, like, was not lost on me. But I think it's also important for folks to remember a couple of other things about this. Right. So in Alabama, um, when the pandemic started, Alabama had twice the national poverty rate. You mentioned, Robbie, earlier that uh, Alabama's um, the money of the percentage of that, those federal COVID relief funds that it diverted to constructing these new prisons was five times the amount that they diverted to health care and nursing home facilities in a state that ran out of ICU beds at points during the COVID-19 pandemic like this is just bonkers to me and and yet um here in in baltimore and in maryland too governor larry hogan is like trying to make political hay out of his quote refund the police uh initiative when the police were never meaningfully defunded in fact as brandon soderberg and jessel nor report all the time uh for the real news we just keep throwing bad money after good at the police here and it does not correlate to a drop in crime it just correlates to more ridiculous um you know uh, uh contracts with companies that are supplying the police department with new toys like a throwbot or this this sonic you know triangulation technology that supposedly lets cops like say like oh that was a gunshot and they arrest people and there are often been times when they arrested people and they weren't even guilty of the crime so like we're using all this money on toys and fancy equipment that doesn't even work while real people and, and institutions across the country are cash-strapped and suffering, it's just madness. It's like that, uh, what's the, the meme, the Pawn Stars meme? 
more should be more money for uh, for for suffering people. Best I can do is prisons. <laughs> so, Amy, you know, what do you think about? And my view is, I, I don't know. Maybe hospitals, nursing homes might still need money. I don't know how much we need money for uh, for masks and things of that nature anymore. But to to just take the money and then and then give it into to police coffers, uh, maybe I don't know. Maybe that should make some people who support a lot more government spending, I guess, reticent. Where does it end up? That's a question I always have. Sure. Well, I think that this administration set the precedence, actually, uh, for the, for everyone being nervous and scared uh, just to live their daily lives. And it doesn't matter if you have the greatest health care, if you have the most wonderful hospitals, if you have the best schools, if you don't have safety, then you don't have, you know, anything really at the end of the day. And so that's why I think we see a lot of this money now being diverted back to uh, either jails or to police forces, because it doesn't matter which party you're affiliated with. At the end of the day, you want to make sure that your house is safe, that your car will still be there in the morning, that your children will get to school without being assaulted, that you can make it to work without your tires being slashed. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it, it's common sense that people would want to feel safe. And so, you know, my husband is actually a Douglas County commissioner up in northern Nevada. And he even said that the money that was allocated each jurisdiction, like you had mentioned, dealing with a number of other states, is actually given um, the the uh, they are able to put it into their general fund and then to find out whatever use they find necessary. And so that's what my husband's actually dealing with right now. And so it very well may be jails. It may be police force, um, but they are allowed to do it and move money around. And so it's going to be interesting to see how each jurisdiction does decide to use their money. Now, it's also, I think, this administration's fault with the way that the PPP loans were handed out. So we're screaming about, you know, businesses not getting the funding. But then we look at the way that that was divvied up. It wasn't fair because I know uh, construction companies that are doing very well that received uh, millions of dollars and also casinos were bailed out while the struggling small business owners were left to hang or close their doors. So there's a lot of funny business going on with the way that money's allocated. Well, the, the PPP loans were a bipartisan project enacted in March 2020 under the Trump administration, right? And, and administered by the Trump administration. Okay, well, fair enough, but I'll tell you that the the way that the money, though, when you find out now where it was actually sent, it is very concerning. So, okay, I'll go ahead and admit that it's both people's fault. It's both sides' fault. But at the end of the day, the money's not being actually used for the original intent, and I think that's what's really concerning. And, Max, the, the $300 billion sticker price really jumps out at me. If the administration had just kind of casually moved $300 billion from pandemic relief into climate investments, it would be the biggest climate investment in world history. And yet this is just a little extra cheese for the cops. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. And like, you're absolutely right. And and I guess the thing that, again, is just um, it's so egregious that we almost lose sight of it. But, you know, I, th I really want to emphasize for people like and, and ask the question, like, why do we not put 
the amount of budgetary scrutiny on police and the military and the prison industrial complex that we put on any other government service, right? We have been watching in real time as Louis DeJoy has been gutting the United States Postal Service in broad daylight. Uh, the most beloved government institution in the country has been gutted. And now we have delays. We have workers who are like, you know, working their butts off just to try to keep up uh, while, you know, someone who is running the U.S. Postal Service, who has a vested interest in private parcel delivery, is doing this. And yet, like, we are still talking about, oh, the USPS is not cost effective. What is cost effective about all this money that we are diverting into police that is not translating to, you know, lowered crime? It's it's. I, I, again, I'm, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills over here. And another thing to really emphasize, right, is that this is really a question of political will. This is a question of really re-examining where those resources are going and what they are doing for our people and our country, right? And one side has the will, the other side does not. Alabama is a perfect example of that, right? When people did uh, object to Alabama using uh, $400 million to build new prisons, people pushed back and the U.S. Treasury actually said, yeah, actually this is not necessarily kosher and they did it anyway. Alabama just went through and they said, okay, well, we're going to, we're still going to build it. What are you going to do about it? And now everyone's like, well, I guess we're not going to do anything. So we actually, and, and in fact, now Biden and the Democrats are pushing hard to say like, no, we love the police. We're going to refund the police. It shows how like with the police never being meaningfully defunded, like these issues that take up so much oxygen in our political discourse aren't actually based in any sort of fact. They're based in feeling. And that is a real problem. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Max, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Coming up, Nancy Pelosi's husband has had some extremely good luck in the stock market lately, and it's renewing calls to ban lawmakers' spouses from insider trading. Yeah, luck. We'll discuss Mr. Pelosi's big investment next. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, recently invested $2.2 million in Tesla, according to Business Insider. This comes after Paul's $2.9 million investment in American Express, Apple, PayPal, and Disney. Back in January, Forbes is calling the Tesla purchase one of Pelosi's biggest equity investments this year. Mr. Pelosi has made tens of millions of dollars from stock trades during the past two years, and his latest purchase looks just as promising, according to the Western uh, journal Pelosi bought uh, bought in at $500 a share last Thursday. Some there's some options involved there. Since then, Tesla's share price has increased to over $1,036 a share. The purchase comes as Democrats are asking Biden to stand firm on the $555 billion dedicated to climate change in Build Back Better, which would include a $12,500 credit for consumers who purchase a new electric vehicle. A hearing about stock trading reforms is expected to happen in the coming weeks after it was postponed last Wednesday. Do you know why it was postponed? I don't know why it was. But mm. uh, anyway, it's... Uh, They're saying COVID, but oh, I don't quite know. Somebody has COVID. Somebody always has COVID. <laughs> yes. Not uh, an excuse anymore, people. And the news on this, so in my radar, I talked about Manchin uh, speaking at that right. Sierra Week conference. And elsewhere in the, those remarks, which I didn't play, uh, he said that, look... Uh, if I'm all for subsidizing electric vehicles, but I'm not for what was in the previous version, which was only subsidies for union-made electric vehicles. And so that's a big win for Tesla. It's also a win. Pretty, Toyota's not union, right? I, I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I could, I'll Google that. So Toyota has a massive plant in West Virginia. 
And, and Manchin made a, a clean point, which was, you say that this is a civilization extinction level event. Like, you can't hold it up over just subsidizing union electric right. vehicles. It's like, all right, you know what? That's a clean hit. Fine. And so Democrats are just going to give him basically anything he wants if this package comes together, which means there would be subsidies available for uh, any electric vehicle, whether it was made by union hands or not union hands. Uh, now, the, thing about, the, the interesting thing about the Pelosi situation is Pelosi says, and there's every reason to believe this is true, that she herself doesn't own any stocks, doesn't trade any stocks. Just the husband. Her husband is a stock trader. Right. Like, that's his job. He's like an investment guy. Like, that, that's, why, that's why he's as rich as he is. He's, ex, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And so it raises an interesting question about um, the ban on family stock trading. Like, what if your spouse, that's their job, is, is to trade stocks? I suppose, I don't, I don't know if the rule would be you could still trade stocks for clients, but just not for yourself. But now your clients would get all the benefit of this. Me, I'm, I'd be fine. Okay, cool. No spouses of traders are gonna, can serve in Congress. I'm fine with that. I, and I think that that would, that would poll at probably 85%. I'm sure there's some people who'd be like, oh, that's not fair, but hey, there's a lot of, life's a lot of other jobs. Life's, life's unfair. unfair. There are a lot, lot of, of other jobs. More unfair things than that. Yes, <laughs> yes, there are. Doesn't, about, doesn't quite crack yeah. my top unfair. Oh no. Maybe top five thousand. Nancy Pelosi has to retire 10, sometime before she turns nine ninety five. Yeah. Or her husband, like you, like you still have to be doing this. Why don't right. people? Why don't people? I guess you know, in these jobs where it's it's not just money but it's power. I guess yeah. Because that, if you have hundreds of millions. You can't you have spend to keep that going. In your life. Yeah, you yeah. can't. You have right. You have everything you could want or need. Yeah. But why? So why do they need to? And it's just gonna. More? It's just gonna ruin your grandchildren's lives anyway. Like if you look. Yeah. If you look at the out, outcomes. Oh, I know. Of the third and fourth generation from Children billionaires. Vast wealth. They're all in rehab and miserable and just. They're just unhappy, and you know just so so they're fueling inequality. They're they're fueling all the climate collapse. And they're not even happy doing it. Yeah. Be one thing if, it'd be one thing if it was bringing joy to them, but it's not even doing that. So, yeah, ban it for their own good. <laughs> for their own good. Yeah. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> but I, there's no reason that they need to have control in our government as well. The, the, this right. easy, clearly permeable line. Like, there's right. no way they're not talking to each other. about it. It's unavoidable. Right. It's just unavoidable right. That, right. Like, that there wouldn't be influence. And they go to events together, too. And so he, he's, even if she doesn't tell him, you know what, that, that union provision is probably not going to make it. Even if she doesn't tell him that, he's, he, he goes occasionally to events. Um, not a ton, but uh, you know, I've seen him around the Capitol once or twice. Uh, and, and, if, and he might go to other fundraisers or whatever where he's meeting people and who, who might say, yeah, this union-made EV thing isn't going to last. It's like, oh, great. How interesting. Mm, good to know. I'll, let my, I'll pass that on <laughs> yes. to my clients. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. But it, it shows why someone in Pelosi's position has opposed the greater restrictions of stock trading. Obviously. I can't imagine what that conversation's like. Yeah. Like, because, like, if the bill were written right... Honey, you're going to force me to early retirement <laughs> yes. here? If the, if the bill were... I mean, early right. retirement, I don't know how old they are. They're, it's not early retirement, right. just... <laughs> early for them. Early yeah. for that class. Yes. Right. But yeah, so she would have to sign off on. And, and that's why I think 
they can say that COVID was why they didn't, help, didn't hold the hearing, but it does feel like they want to slow walk this until they move on, which would it, just insane to allow Republicans to run on this. Like, but that has not been a deterrent in other things. Right. <laughs> nope, it has not. And then watch when Republicans take control, they'll do some like fake, like they won't even ban it either. Like this is a bipartisan, this is a major bipartisan problem. So we're hearing the committee on House administration postponed the meeting after its chair, uh, Zoe Lofgren, tested positive for COVID. So there you go. Could have done it remote. Okay. Somebody's Fine. always going to test positive for wishing, COVID. Wishing Congresswoman Lofgren the best in her recovery. Certainly. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Last June, the long-awaited report from the Department of Defense detailing the government's knowledge of UFOs and its programs trying to detect them and catalog them was released. And to the chagrin of many of the subject's enthusiasts, it was a bit underwhelming. The nine-page report stated it lacked sufficient data either way to confirm or deny whether or not objects reported by U.S. service members were of extraterrestrial origin. But new information has been revealed after BlackVault.com creator John Greenwald Jr. obtained a redacted version of the classified report, and he joins us now to discuss. Welcome. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So tell us, what is the new information uh, that was redacted? What, ha- what does it reveal? Sure. So we know when that report came out to us, the general public, uh, Congress was given a report themselves in a classified setting. The unknown was exactly what it was going to entail. So I filed a case the next morning after we got the public version to get that released. It took until now to actually get it released, heavily redacted, but it does uh, offer a little bit of a glimpse into what Congress saw in a classified setting and how the UFO phenomena is not easily explainable. Even though the public report told us that, it goes into greater detail about uh, various military pilots encountering UAPs, exhibiting technology that we don't have, uh, a identification that we can't peg. Uh, This phenomena, whatever it is, is definitely real and it's plaguing military pilots. And, And this new document released, which again was given to Congress in that classified setting, gives more of a glimpse of what really is there uh, when it comes to the phenomena and how they can't explain it. And what are, what are the best what are the best explanations and how would you rank them? And you know kind of and how do those explanations change based on this new information? Sure. What's interesting is when you talk about the explanations, skeptics, debunkers, if you want to call them that, come out and say, well, it could be classified technology or drones or stuff like that. What's interesting about this is they investigated 144 cases and they could not put uh, 143 of them in any category that they came up with. They were only able to explain one, which was a balloon. The other explanations they said were potentially classified systems from our own military or a foreign adversary, but they weren't able to identify any of the cases they investigated into those categories. So even though those mundane explanations exist, and and I think any investigator would acknowledge that, what's interesting is with the resources of the U.S. military, they couldn't they couldn't put them in those categories. So you 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 have those possible explanations, but the military wasn't able to de- definitively say these fit into a classified platform or 
foreign adversary drone technology, because you can admit that without blowing any classified secrets, yet they weren't able to do it. So it's a short list of what's left. I mean, the general public wants to know, hey, is this alien? Well, of course, you're not going to see that in the report, nor do you. Uh, but they didn't rule it out. And they said that last year. And this report solidifies that, that, you know, that's that's on the short list of possible explanations. Yeah, there's that, which obviously, right, that would be exciting. That's what people want to hear, you know, evidence found, et cetera. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, but, you know, the other, the, in many ways, the more legitimate thing, I think the lack of transparency around these issues, the government, you know, just not sharing uh, what it what it knows, you know, is this, you know, more evidence that no matter how pressed or how pushed they are, they're, they're still not going to take this question, seri- take the question of telling the public what they do know seriously. Well, absolutely. And this document, although discouraging that it is heavily redacted, absolutely solidifies the secrecy around this phenomena, whatever it is. It likely has multiple explanations. And ironically, the report reflects that as well. But it likely has multiple explanations. Uh, But the bottom line is, is, is the military and the U.S. government has a secret here and they don't want to tell the general public about it. And you look at all these redactions and again, although discouraging, that in itself tells a story. And when you really sit down and and digest the document, some may theorize, oh, this is just about our classified system platforms that that detected whatever these craft are. And you can see in certain areas, yes, that is likely the explanation for the redactions. But when you really look at some of the other areas, they don't want to tell you the capabilities of what they these UAP are, these mysterious unknown craft. And the explanation to to that would not be classified, in my opinion. Uh, We know our systems can detect speeds, can detect altitudes. uh, So that's that's not classified. They won't tell you where UAPs are flying or how fast. I don't think that that should be classified, yet it is. Another key section is what they look like. Uh, they, they, They label it common shapes, and then another area is uncommon shapes. That's entirely redacted as well. They won't even tell you the visual representation of what these craft look like. So let's say we are dealing with a drone type of technology. Well, there's only so many shapes a drone can be, and is that in itself, without any identifying information on a, on a diagram or a picture, uh, without any identifying information, is that classified? My answer would be no. Yet they won't tell you a single visual observation on what shape these are. So it, again, it, it really solidifies the secrecy behind what these UAP really are. And outside of this document, do, do we have a sense or do you have a guess about what they mean by common shapes? Well, I, I, I take that as the 144 reports that they investigated or incidents that they investigated. There was a common trait between a lot of them that were within the shape. Uh, so that's how I that's how I read that. That's how mm-hmm. I define that at this point. But no, again, no, of course, it's all yeah. it's but all no sense of what that is. No sense what it is. Right. Uh, and, and that begs the question, why? Why is simply a shape of a vehicle a, a threat to national security? If <laughs> they tell the general public, what could that reveal? And and for me, I don't have an answer to that, but it's an intriguing it's an intriguing question because it really then uh, not to beat the dead horse, but it solidifies the secrecy behind something that for decades the U.S. military and government denied really even existed. Now they admit it exists, 
They admit they're investigating it, but they won't tell you a darn thing about it. And that's what keeps me kind of going and, and pushing for answers. Mm. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And we'll have more Rising coming up next. Yesterday, we saw another tense day of confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson. Senator Lindsey Graham got particularly heated when grilling Judge Brown-Jackson, not on her credentials or past decisions, but about the 2018 confirmation hearing of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Let's watch that. You were here for Kavanaugh. If she's confused about what happened, some people on the other side had an accusation against Judge Kavanaugh that during high school, uh, he sexually assaulted somebody. And the rest is history. That was known to the people on the other side and never revealed during the meetings they had with Judge Kavanaugh. It was literally ambushed. He was ambushed. How would you feel if we did that to you? Senator, I've appreciated the kindness that each of you has shown me to see me in your offices, to talk with me about but, my approach. But, but my question is, what if it, during our 15-minute exchange, it was very pleasant. You're a very nice person. You have a lot to be proud of. I would never do that to you. If I had some information that's sketchy at best, that somehow you've done something wrong, I promise you, just from human decency, I would share it with you. I would not disclose it at the last minute of the last day of the hearing, and I've already given it to a newspaper so the whole country can read about it before you ever said a word. Senator, she's had nothing to do with the cause. No, but I'm asking her about how how she may feel about what y'all did. I think if Republicans had that, some kind of information like that, they would absolutely... They'd give it to me. They'd give it to you, Yeah. yeah. Well, so on the and 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 I don't like uh, Brown Jackson had nothing to do with that. No. So it's very weird to grill her about it. That said, and I think you and I maybe disagree on this based on the earlier half conversation we have. I I, I do agree that the treatment. I agree broadly with the right that the the treatment of Kavanaugh was not great, and it was a very difficult situation. And I don't, but I don't know. And I'm broadly against sort of resurfacing decades-old accusations that cannot really be, because of the, how, the time ago, cannot really be adjudicated. There's no evidence. There's nothing we can really do with them and except kind of smear people or try to tarnish right. them. Look, obviously, it was a weird situation uh, because this is a very important position, the Supreme Court, and there's only nine people going to sit on it. But uh, it, it did strike me as like an 11th hour yeah. Attempt to destroy no, I, someone that well, like what can we do? Like that can happen to anyone, and there's there's no like we don't have a time machine. We can't. I, I, I I'm not I'm not saying she was lying right. about it, but I wasn't say, like how do you set? There's just no way to no. go about this. I actually think you're you're right that they didn't handle it well. I think Blasey, Christine Blasey Ford's allegation should have been should have been aired at the beginning, and she was willing to come forward in the beginning. And she was kind of pushed by Feinstein and the staff to not come forward. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't have been left to the media to suss it out. To me, actually, I was the one that he's referring to there. Uh, Democrats did not give it to me. Uh, be, but they sh- they sh- she was willing to come forward. And so should have been allowed to do so at, at the beginning. And then there, there was some recklessness with Michael Avenatti, 
mm -hmm. uh, coming forward with uh, allegations of gang rape that completely sent the place into a circus atmosphere and undermined the, the credibility of the other allegation of the allegation that was already out there. Uh, so I think that's legitimate. But I think that what Graham is doing here is trying to create a pretext for his eventual no vote, uh, despite the fact that he voted for Brown Jackson recently to be on the circuit court. So he has to figure out a way that he can justify flipping from yes to a no. And I think this is going to be his justification. <laughs> This one fair to Brett Kavanaugh. He doesn't have to justify. Like these, this is we all know the stakes here. Like all the Republicans are going to vote again. Although she's going to get she's going to get confirmed yeah. anyway. Right. So it doesn't. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if you get Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski, whoever or, wants yeah. some mainstream credibility because they cannot stop this nomination and aren't right. going to. And it's replacing you know one liberal with another. So it's not. Right. The, the stakes are not, I mean, the stakes are high, but they're not. If there was any way they could stop her nomination, I'm sure they would. Right. But they can't, so there's really no point to try. Right. And the other thing with stopping a nomination is that as long as there's still time before the next election, you can put somebody else in who's going to yeah. vote the same way. Yeah. So that lowers the stakes a little bit. Absolutely. And it's, but it's it continued to get heated today. So Senator Hawley doubled down in grilling Brown Jackson about her controversial uh, child pornography rulings. Watch some of that. You also told the defendant, you said this, this seems to be a case where you were fascinated by sexual images involving what were essentially your peers. And then you went on to say the defendant was merely trying to satisfy his curiosity. Curiosity is your word. One more thing on this, same idea. You said you were viewing, this is you to the defendant, you were, you were viewing sex acts between children who were not much younger than you and this whole discussion is about why you're only giving him three months judge he was 18 these kids are eight i don't see in what sense they're peers i've got a nine-year-old a seven-year-old and a 16-month-old at home and i live in fear that they will be exposed to let alone exploited in this kind of material i don't understand you saying to him that they're peers why isn't it rational to sentence people who have thousands of images on a computer to more time as opposed to somebody who has one or two pictures in the mail. In other words, the more images there are, why wouldn't you want to sentence that person to more time rather than less? Why isn't that rational? Senator, I've answered this question and I'll stand on what I already answered. So, but, but your answer is what? I mean, refresh my memory. Senator, I've answered this question. I've explained how the guidelines work, and I'll stand on my answer. The yeah, and this question really consumed the whole day again. Uh, she, she just faced repeated questioning from this uh, that I think was in almost entirely bad faith. Um, I've covered a lot of... Uh, sex offender uh, cases because there are a lot of civil liberties issues tied up in them. Mm. And, you know, everyone imagines that the situation is, right, some creepy old pedophile preying on kids. And, th yeah, those people are out there. Lock them up. Absolutely. But actually, the sentencing requirements for people accused of this crime are well beyond any other, like, you know, mobsters, serial killers can get released. Not serial killers. Mob <laughs> people who commit violent crimes right. will get released before people uh, caught with these images. And, uh, and I think that that's part of what she's saying in her response is that some of this doesn't 
the mandatory sentences don't make sense. And then all, but then also, I've covered so many cases where the age discrepancy isn't even that much. It's like 18 and 17. Right. But because of where the age of consent is drawn, sometimes I've seen cases of people charged for having pictures of themselves because they're 17 and they're, they're mm-hmm. technically minors. So even having a picture of yourself <laughs> is considered you're trafficking right. in child pornography. You're the child. There was one, I covered one case where this person was being sentenced as an adult for having pictures of themselves, a minor. So right. they were minor for the standpoint of the child pornography statute, right. but an adult from the standpoint of the, of the sentencing. I, I've read that uh, my, my colleague, Lenore Skenazy, who does a lot of good reporting on this, that the mo- she said the most common age of a person on the sex offender registry is 14. Right. 14. Makes, makes sense because they're swapping back pictures of each other. Right. So, which, which is not to, do, but like, which I absolutely yeah. don't want to, you know, make it sound like this isn't an important issue. We should absolutely prosecute uh, 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 predators, uh, people who are who are mistreat, who are abusing young people. I'm not saying it's not an important issue, but there are reasons. There are many cases where leniency is appropriate. There's many right. cases where leniency is appropriate on all sorts of other sentences too. And and they just kept hammering this. Do you know where he came up with the eight year old thing? I no, I, I have no idea. I don't. Um, and maybe that's well, the case. But Lenore Skenazy, again, my coworker, she wrote about a case where you you had a, an older. I forget what age exactly this person was, but they they were over the age of consent line, but they were mentally handicapped. They had the like they had a child's <coughs> mind and that's a, like a child's level sexual interest. Again, it's gross to talk about. Right. It's, I'm not, and I'm not saying nothing should happen to that person. Probably that person does need therapy is what they really need. So there are cases like that, too. Right. Uh, right. And I, there's no room for that sort of, like, nuanced explanation of these issues on this. Right. Floor. And, and we'll, we'll come back with more on this particular. We can, we can look more into this particular case. But, you know, off, often what can happen if, if there is, a, you know, th- uh, what do you say, thousands of, of yeah. photos, there might be one person among all those photos that's an eight-year-old, but that's not at all like central or like yeah. sig- significant part of. And you know, and maybe Holly's heard about this case. I have no idea. I haven't looked at right. particular. If somebody has thousands of images of an of a of a kid of a, in a sexually compromised position, maybe they sh- the sentence should be longer right. than what she arrived at. I, I don't know. I did and, <laughs> very well. She's and as you know, the way that prosecutors talk about this stuff, sometimes they'll say you have thousands of images, but what you actually have is a link mm-hmm. to like some type of website or something that right. itself has thousands of images, which not to justify having that link in your possession, but it makes people feel like you're, you're sitting there with boxes and boxes of images when actually they're, it's the internet. Mm-hmm. You had a link to the internet. And, and if you follow the right links, you get to these dis- foul, disgusting criminal things. And, but just hearing it makes you think, oh, well, they must have had all of those things just right, right personally in their possession. And so... There's a government entrapment element to some of these mm-hmm. things, too, because some police officers will meet, or they used to do this a lot, they'd meet people in chat rooms, and, and, actually, and first they start out by saying, saying an age that is okay, then, at the, then they arrange for some meeting, and then at the very last meeting they say, I'm, I'm not 19, I'm 17. Mm-hmm. And then if the person shows up, they arrest them, which again... Right. Creepy person, you know, maybe some punishment is appropriate, but no crime right. was about to be committed against any child except the one the government, and, and, there, and there was no child in any danger. The government engineered right. this, uh, right. which is similar to what they did to, uh, to uh, you know, so-called Islamic terrorists, 
a little bit of what they, the uh, the um, uh, Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping trial is going on right now. <laughs> right. It's, it certainly edges up against that when you find out that all the people leading this conspiracy were like paid by the government to right. egg the other people on to do this kidnap. Like she was never in any right. danger. The FBI knew about the whole thing the whole time. Right. And sex offenders, that's where the state goes to erode civil liberties first because yeah. nobody wants to like say anything that could remotely be construed as defending the yeah. most hideous, disgusting thing like that. It's like, so, that, so they're like, this is, this is a turkey shoot. We can just do whatever we want here because nobody's going to say anything. Yeah. So, so I'd say be careful before you join that parade. There's a lot of, and there's a lot of ways the policies actually make us uh, less safe. With, with, in terms of like the residency requirements for people after they're, after they're hmm. done being incarcerated, like these people all end up, people who've been on the sex offender registry or people who've been in jail, they all end up homeless. They all end up, they can't get a job. And it, they're under circumstances where they're more likely to become some kind of future right. menace to society. So it's just, it's, it's not well thought right. out. Take, take people who already have predilections in the wrong direction. And, and produce, their, wrong. produce material conditions right. that are going to drive further. And then we have people further. sitting in tents everywhere. Yeah. Um, All right. In typical congressional fashion, the bickering wasn't just limited between senator and nominee, but senator and senators as well. Here's Ted Cruz. I believe he recognized me. May I proceed? Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, I I waited my turn on here, and I've been on this committee for 47 years. I I think we ought to follow the regular order. Mr. Chairman, the witness just said that we cannot understand those cases without the pre-sentence report. I don't want to go through this again. I have a letter that I want to enter into the record that's signed by 10 senators on this committee. Are are you not even going to allow a letter from 10 senators on this committee? We can do what Judge Jackson just said, which is to assess those reports. And here is the letter. I know the junior senator from Texas likes to get on television. But most of us have been here a long time trying to follow the rules. We also learned uh, that yesterday that Ted Cruz is a name searcher. After yes, I saw that. Oh, but he, and here he is. Uh, he was on uh, Fox last night. Um, but he, they all were uh, on the on the. Well, let, let's make this point, and then we'll and then we'll read that. He uh, right after his uh, questioning, you saw him. His head went straight into his yeah. phone. And then the people behind him were like, I can he confirm. saw he was searching his Not name. just in his mentions, but straight up doing the Ted Cruz search just to see how people were enjoying his questioning rather than he was clearly paying zero attention to. So it makes his complaints about the, the process uh, fall, you know, fall the, a little bit short. That's the problem with this whole thing. It's just a photo right. op. It's right. just. And how did people like my picture? That's yeah. all it is. That's all so, it is. Uh, Senator Leahy may have a point as Senators Josh Hawley, Lindsey Graham, Tom Cotton, and Ted Cruz earned spots on Hannity last night for their performances during the hearing. So, yeah, exactly. It's performances. Their performances during I, And there were performances on the other side. I don't know oh, if you saw yeah, Cory yeah. Booker. The, the tears. Like, oh, oh yeah. I'm so inspired. Yeah. I'm so, yeah, it's ridiculous. Which, which I mean, it is inspiring, finally. Black woman on the Supreme Court. There's something to that. you got to. We still, but, we're still doing this first, yeah. first, first we are still. XYZ category person to do something. Right, but this is a major category. Yeah. Black women. Yeah. Like that's. We have, a, we have that's, some that's women. Not we like, have uh, black justices, but now we're combining them in one person. There you go. Well, exciting. Exciting. But if it's a cover. Sunny and brave. Yeah, anyway, well, we got to run. All right.
Tomorrow on Rising, we'll discuss Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and Connor Lamb's run for Senate in Pennsylvania, and looks like it's about to get heated. Plus, is the D.C. political scene more like West Wing or Veep? We'll give you our thoughts on that tomorrow. And Rachel Bovard is with us to discuss Trump's war chest for a potential 2024 run and Stormy Daniels' refusal to pay Trump over $300,000 plus Max Alvarez and Daniel Bogoslaw break down their recent reporting. You won't want to miss that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So you can check us out there. Stitcher, Google Play, Apple. Is that where people listen to podcasts? I, I've, I've listened to, I listened to some pod, more podcasts this week than I usually Spotify. Do. Spotify. That's my go-to, Spotify. Yeah. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody.